Morning everybody, I would love to welcome you right now to stand with us and just worship our God this morning. Come on, sing with me, just one word. Just one word, you calm the storm that surrounds me. Just one word, the darkness has to retreat. Just one touch, I feel the presence of heaven. Just one touch, my eyes are open to see. My heart can't help but believe. There's nothing that I can't do. There's not a mountain that He can move. Oh, praise the name that makes a way. There's nothing that our God can't do. Just one word, you heal what's broken inside me. Just one word, and you revive every.
may be seated this morning. Good morning, Groton Bible Chapel. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. We have a, just a few announcements this morning, so I didn't want you to have to stand up for the whole time. Uh, number one, thank you for coming. We just welcome here to Groton Bible Chapel. It's so awesome to see all these families here, so awesome to see all these young kids. And just let you know, if your kid's starting to get squirmy and you're starting to sweat, you don't actually have to miss the service if you, if you want to uh, you know, leave the room. We do have the service broadcast in the commons. We have the nursery rooms opened up. Uh, we have the nursing mother's room opens up. So there's plenty of, plenty of places other than in here to see the service. You don't feel like you have to miss it. Uh, second thing, we have Thanksgiving Eve service coming up. And so that's going to be on the 25th. And what we're trying to do for that is ask you to register for the service, just so we have an idea of how many people are going to be coming to that. Uh, that's at 5.30 on the 25th. So if you want to attend uh, that service, please pre-register on our website, uh, grantonbiblechapel.org. Um, and one more thing, we have our Thanksgiving baskets. Uh, tomorrow is the deadline for Thanksgiving baskets. We have a lot of food collected, but we still need a lot more. So if you are planning on donating food toward the Thanksgiving basket effort, could you please have that in today or tomorrow? And whatever we don't have at that point, we're gonna make a shopping list and go and buy it. So, um, and I think that's it. Um, so would you all please stand and we'll continue worshiping together. Thank you. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. The God I serve knows only how to triumph my God will never fail my God will never fail I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory for the
surge like I want to say like 45 minutes before the first service and uh, you know I'm just reminded of this song just how crazy how crazy our lives can be and uh, this song says you know we had during the power surge we had like people coming in for the first service you know we're trying to get things on like our video wall like some of it went out like it's <laughs> just been kind of a crazy morning but what's great is, um, you know, our God doesn't care about the technology. Our God just cares about our hearts. And this song says, I will build my life upon 
the cross. I will build my life upon Jesus. And, um, you know, in this life, things happen that are out of our control. They're out of our control. And we build our lives upon the cross because he is the one in control. He is the one worthy of our praise. It is Jesus. And that's the one that we, that we put our faith in. You know, he goes, he goes before us. Technology doesn't go before us. You know, the things that happen in our lives, when things get us down, when difficulties and struggles happen in our lives, those things don't go, go before us. Our God goes before us. And he cares for us. So he is worthy. We're going to continue our time of worship together. We're going to sing this song. Sing this with me. Worthy of every song. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. All oh, we live for you. In Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. How worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Sing holy, holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you, I open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those song we could ever sing and worthy of all the praise we could ever bring you're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you oh we live for you sing jesus in jesus the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say, You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Sing holy.
Sing this with me. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I
You may be seated. Hey, um, this morning, can we say thanks to the worship team and the welcome team and uh, the tech team? And thank you guys for leading us in worship. You know, it's been a, it's been a difficult season for all those that serve in these different capacities to, to lead us. And it's been a challenge. And in fact, uh, this morning, I want to respond to a lot of questions that we're getting as a church leadership about COVID-19 and kind of where the church stands. If you don't know who I am, uh, my name's Gary. I'm on the pastoral staff, but I'm here this morning really to speak on behalf of the elders. And I just want to acknowledge uh, this morning that we have uh, had a lot of questions, like what are we doing, how are we doing, where are we going, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I want to encourage us this morning that uh, for those uh, attending this morning from their living rooms or their homes, as well as those gathered here in this room and even next door, that we're really speaking to all of you. Groton Bible Chapel is not just those who are in the room, but those of you who are at home, we are, we are with you as well. We are one, one family. And so I want to kind of speak to all of us this morning. And uh, the elders have been meeting, uh, we met specifically this past Tuesday, and discussed at length where we are as a church, and really just asked the Lord to give us clarity and wisdom. We spent, spent a lot of time working on this topic amongst a bunch of other things that are, are going on, because this is the reality in which we find ourselves. And I just want to uh, encourage you this morning that as shepherds of the flock of God gathered here at Groton Bible Chapel, both uh, in this building and abroad, uh, we weigh very carefully and, and uh, uh, the, all these decisions. I would ask you to pray for us in this season. We'd be praying for each other, pray together, uh, that we would strike this delicate balance of, of caring for uh, all that comes, the risks that are associated with COVID-19 on the one hand, and the unique role that a church plays in society, even more than a business or social services, in caring for the emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being uh, of, of individual people and of families and so forth. Now, on the one hand, we do not want to in any way downplay the seriousness of this virus and its potential uh, deadliness. Uh, we want to take that very seriously and be, continue to be uh, vigilant. However, at the current moment, and I mean right now at least, uh, New London County continues to be a pretty low-risk part of the state of Connecticut as we are still under a 3% infection rate. And we're continuing to see that COVID-19 has an extremely low mortality rate. And um, what's coupled with that for us in shepherding the flock of Jesus Christ is that people 
directly related to isolation or really struggling with mental, uh, mental health. And uh, it's interesting, and I don't think coincidence, that a Harvard study that was concluded through the month of October was just published that says that particularly amongst young people, that isolation is causing mental health concerns and even suicidal thoughts at an order of magnitude higher than it was pre-COVID, from like roughly 3% to roughly 40%. So it's even more than an order of magnitude higher. And we have seen that in our walls and in our community. I won't tell you all the stories this morning, but people are struggling. And so as we weigh, again, the concerns of our physical health, and we need to take those seriously, we are also weighing the concerns of our mental, emotional, and spiritual health and the role that we play in the community. And so we're going to continue to gather. We think as we stand before God, as we stand before God in shepherding a congregation that doesn't include just your particular stance, and believe me, it's all over the place in this church, not just where you might find yourself and where your convictions might be, but 11, 1,200 people who consider this church their church home, uh, that we are going to continue to gather and yet be vigilant as well. One change that we are going to make, just as the numbers are getting higher, is we're going to uh, move the what has been traditionally the overflow space next door in the old fellowship hall, the staff area, to a masks-on-at-all-time place. And so if that uh, opens things up for you, we'd encourage you to do that. And if you're really struggling with our decisions one way or the other, we would invite you to continue to attend online. That's probably the best option for you at this time. Again, we want to care for, care for everyone. And so, you know, with all this in mind, I want to just pray for us. I want to pray over us. I want to pray together uh, in just a moment here and remind us of what makes us unique from social services, from businesses, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's our worship of Jesus. It's our worship of Jesus. And so I'd like to pray for us in a season not only of coronavirus, but of everything that is in front of us as a country and as a community right now, and that we would truly take our eyes off of ourselves and direct our minds and hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue to worship him. And uh, last thing, I, I know this is hard. I know this is hard for some of you. You're like, I'm so done with this. And for others of you, you're like, we need to be more vigilant. We need to do more restrictions. And, and it, whatever the case, you're like, you're weighed down by it. And I get that. It's likely, by the way, that this is a week-to-week decision at this point. And we could be up here in a week saying something different as things continue to change in flux. But I want to just pray for us. And I want to go right to the psalmist because I think he articulates some of where we're at as a people this morning. And then we'll pray and continue with our service. Will you pray with me? The psalmist writes in Psalm 42, Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, or I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So, Lord, as we weigh these decisions in our own lives, as we make decisions as a church, Lord, we want to continue to focus on you. And Jesus asked that you would protect not only this place and those gathered online, but our entire community. Lord, that you would eradicate this virus, vaccine aside, Lord, and allow us to continue to, to live and interact and have relationship the way you've designed us to. But Lord, we want to turn our hearts, our focus, and our attention uh, to you this morning. We want to worship you as we continue in our service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, uh, we're going to hear an exciting update from our youth pastor on what's happening with our young people. So, Jeremy. Good morning, Groton Bible Chapel. 
For some reason, I feel like first service was a little more awake than you guys, but it's okay. It's okay. Uh, like Gary said, I'm the youth pastor, Jeremy Vorce, and I'm uh, excited to give you guys a quick little update about GBC Youth. Uh, we have been meeting in person over the last several weeks, uh, and it's been really awesome. There have been so many stories, like Gary said, uh, of just parents and youth alike coming up to me and saying, I needed this. I, I needed this group. Um, and that's not just even the people that are coming in person. We also do have a Thursday night option uh, for our middle school program that is completely virtual, that we take our lesson from Wednesday night and, and give it in an hour format for students that aren't ready to come back yet because one of the things that we acknowledge is this is not our whole church family right here. That we have several people that are at home right now as we speak that are tuning in that are equally a part of our family. And so we want to love and care for them the same way that we want to love and care for all of you. And so we also do have uh, our virtual Sunday school that has been going out every single week that students can log in and engage with the same curriculum that we're going through right now in our service next door. Um, but we are really excited for the students that have come, just have that interaction time with one another and also that connection point with leaders, that uh, our whole point of youth ministry is coming alongside students. And uh, one of the things that coronavirus has really shown us is as much as we are all affected as adults, the youth are equally as affected by this. Um, and so we want to just love on them and help them walk through this journey. Uh, several of them that aren't making decisions for themselves, that people are making decisions for them. And so we want to really love and embrace them through that. Uh, I'm also up here to give a very exciting announcement uh, that GBC Youth will be attending Berea's Deep Freeze this year. Um, I know it's still many months away. Some of you are like, I'm not even sure 2021 is going to happen yet. Um, but as of right now, we are planning to take a group of students up to Berea. Uh, we've done this every single year um, since probably the start of Deep Freeze. Um, and it's just a really impactful time of taking them outside of their little bubble, outside of their little world and really allowing them to have these amazing encounters with God. And so next week on the 22nd, we are going to start registration and signups for this. So if you have a student who's interested in attending Berea Deep Freeze, uh, they can sign up next week. We have 50 spots available uh, for this trip, and the cost is $200. I did want to make a quick little comment about the cost because we do this every single year, that if you think a student won't go because it's $200 or you're family cannot afford that at that this time. We understand that this season has also brought some financial difficulty. We never want to let the dollar sign prevent a student from attending a trip like this. And so we do have a campership available uh, for any student that wants to attend a trip that they think the dollar sign is what's going to prevent them from coming. Um, and so there's a really easy application process. Um, but I've had every single time we've mentioned the campership, people say, how can I give to that? That maybe in this season you aren't facing a financial difficulty, uh, and in fact maybe you, you found yourself with some extra money and you said, I want to be able to send someone to a trip like that. Um, that you can just donate to Groton Bible Chapel in the memo line, just say campership. That fund is solely for students and children who want to attend a camp or a youth retreat. Um, and so all that money will go towards students just attending these kind of trips. Uh, and like I said, it's just so impactful uh, when we take students out of their little bubble and let them encounter God in that amazing way. Um, and so like I said too, that is 
is the decision right now. We are many months away from that, and so things could possibly change, but I'm personally hoping uh, that they don't because I know a lot of these students just kind of need a, a breath of fresh air. Uh, and what better than uh, northern New Hampshire that it's just out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so... We are super excited about that. What I want to do now is invite you uh, to find someone in the crowd here. Wave to them. Let them know that you are acknowledging that they are here. If you're tuning in online, I know we say this every single week, but I really invite you, pull out your cell phone, find someone in your contact list, and just let them know you are super appreciative that they are in your life. And so take that moment, take 30 seconds, acknowledge someone now. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Alan Patton, and this is the third week in our study of the Book of Ruth. But before we jump into chapter three, I have a question I'd like you to ponder for a moment. And it's simply this. What is best in life? What is best in life? It's a question I've often considered, starting when I was just a small boy. Growing up, my parents were big Frank Sinatra fans. And apparently, so was I, because in nearly every photo taken of me between the ages of three and six years old, I am dressed like a miniature Frank Sinatra. Little sports coat and bow tie, Sinatra hat. Well, here, see for yourself. <laughs> Seriously. But I knew all of his songs, and one in particular called The Best Things in Life Are Free. Well, as a kid, I could certainly get behind that. I mean, yeah, give me some free stuff. Let's start with a bicycle, a BB gun, maybe that monster model Ricky Olsen stole from me. But of course, that's not what the song means. It isn't about getting a bunch of free stuff, but rather the fact that more often than not, the things in life that really matter, that have true value, are the things money can't buy. Family, friends, a kind word, maybe some of the things you've already been thinking of. Well then, as a teenager, I went to see the movie Conan the Barbarian, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And in this film, he's asked exactly the question I just asked you. Conan, what is best in life? And in signature Schwarzenegger fashion, he answers, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty harsh to me, even for a barbarian. Hopefully not an answer any of you are thinking of. Well, maybe a couple of you. Uh, and then finally, as an adult, I was listening to the song Nature Boy by Nat King Cole and realized there's a lyric in it that may come close to answering this question, what is best in life? It goes like this. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Well, that's certainly echoed in scripture, isn't it? In the gospels, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer is all about love. First, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and following right behind that one, to love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, these three things remain, faith, hope, love, three pretty amazing things, but the greatest of these is love. 
The book of Ruth, by and large, is a love story. But in addition to this tale of Ruth in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, there's another narrative weaving its way just along the outer edges of the story, as it does through much of the Old Testament. It's another love story, an epic one, where a loving God, creator of the universe, sends his son to redeem a lost and rebellious people, you and me. So as we read through the book of Ruth this morning, let's be sure not to miss the bigger picture of God's steadfast loving kindness and redemption. It's the story within her story. And with that, Don Ellsworth is going to read chapter three for us. Um, as part of this series, we've had women doing all the chapter reading. So Don, thanks. Great, thank you, Alan. And good morning, church family. It is just so great to be with all of you this morning. And as Alan said, today we're reading Ruth chapter three. Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't tell him now, I'm sorry, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her. She added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, 
until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> so last week we were introduced to an important player in Ruth's story, Boaz, the man who owns the fields where she's been working, gathering the leftover grain. And in just a handful of verses, we learn a good bit about him. He's an older gentleman, wealthy, compassionate, well-respected, godly, generous, and single. Now, I'm not saying Boaz was the most eligible bachelor in all of Bethlehem, but he was right up there. Now, he's heard about Ruth's kindness to, his mother, to her mother-in-law and is clearly impressed with her, going so far as to provide her with food and protection, promising to allow her to work in the fields until the harvest is over. But even more importantly, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's dead husband, making him a kinsman or guardian redeemer for the family. And this had to do with a requirement in the Mosaic law, which protected widows, making it the duty of their closest living relative to marry and care for them, in this way allowing the family name to be carried on through an heir. As Zach put it last week, the law had a social safety net built into it. And in God's providence, this young widow Ruth ends up in a barley field belonging to Boaz, a kinsman with the power to redeem and rescue her from her current circumstances. Well, as we pick up the story in chapter 3, six or seven weeks have passed since Ruth, Ruth's initial meeting with Boaz. The grain harvest is coming to an end, and Naomi is concerned about Ruth's future. Verse 1, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. In some versions of the Bible, this is translated, find security or find rest for you. It's the same Hebrew word Naomi uses in chapter 1 when she says to her two widowed daughter-in-laws, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi's hope for Ruth is that she will find someone to marry. Now, for all of us living in 21st century America, we may wonder, what's the big deal? What does she need a husband for? But as we've already seen, life for a widow in the ancient Near East was extremely hard. This was a patriarchal society where marriages were arranged, often as a way to further a family's economic standing. Legal rights for women were non-existent, and without the connection to a husband, they were at risk for all kinds of exploitation. A widow had little opportunity outside the generosity of others. Well, Naomi is sure she's found a perfect match for Ruth, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, but apparently there's a problem. Ruth has been working in his fields for about two months, presumably seeing him often, but Boaz has yet to make a move. Sure, they had that initial lunch date back in chapter two, but since then, nothing much has changed. It's been said that older bachelors are often not great when it comes to relationships, and I don't know if that's true, but regardless, Naomi sees Ruth's window of opportunity shrinking as the harvest comes to an end. Not only will Ruth no longer be in the company of Boaz, but what has become their means of livelihood, the gleaning of the grain, will end as well. So Naomi comes up with a plan. And trust me, there's a myriad of ways Bible scholars view not only her motivation for this plan, but just exactly what it is she's telling Ruth to do. Some refer to it as a plot or a scheme, as if she's trying to trap Boaz into some illicit affair. 
Others insist that instead of waiting on God, Naomi is trying to manipulate the situation to her own ends. One commentator called it the absolute worst advice a mother-in-law has ever given. And that's saying a lot. Well, let's take a look for ourselves. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley in the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you were there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet. He will tell you what to do. Actually, that does sound a little sketchy, doesn't it? But here's the thing. We're reading this through the lens of our own modern-day sensibilities and experiences. The landscape of 1100 BC consisted of vast historic and cultural differences. If this plan sounds awkward and uncomfortable, it's because it's filled with so much culturally coded language and custom, totally foreign to us. So in trying to make sense of this passage, let's first consider what we already know about the people involved. Naomi, Ruth, and even Boaz. Having less than pure motivations doesn't seem to be within their character. What we may read as scandalous actually makes a lot of sense when viewed within the culture of that day. This isn't a plan of seduction. Naomi is simply telling Ruth to look her best. Remember, she's out working in the fields all day, so washing and trying to look and smell nice doesn't seem so unreasonable. It's not like she's telling Ruth to put on high heels and a cocktail dress. In fact, the best dress Ruth has might not have been much to look at. But there may be something else going on here beyond the simple act of bathing and putting on nice clothing. Remember, Ruth is a widow, perhaps still in mourning, and the way she dressed and presented herself might have reflected that. So it's possible this change in her appearance goes beyond simply making herself look pretty. It may have been a way to indicate that she was coming out of mourning, basically telling Boaz just from her appearance that she's now eligible to be married. In 2 Samuel 12, King David does something very similar after the death of his infant son. When the boy falls ill, David spends seven days laying on the ground, dressed in sackcloth, praying and fasting. But once he learns of the death of his son, we read this. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. David mourns over the death of his son, but as a symbol of moving on, he washes, anoints himself, and puts on new clothes. It's as if Naomi is saying to Ruth, you've been through a terrible tragedy, losing your husband at such a young age, but now is the time to begin a new chapter in your life, to find a husband and see what blessings Yahweh has in store for you. And as for instructing youth, excuse me, as, as for instructing Ruth to go to Boaz secretly under the cover of darkness, remember, this is a culture where an unmarried woman normally would have no contact with a man unless there were other people present. So going to him in private would be a good way to avoid any gossip or rumors. She tells Ruth to note where Boaz lies down to sleep, which is actually pretty good advice if you don't want to uncover the wrong guy's feet. And as far as lying down at his feet, this would be a gesture of submission, similar to the way a servant lies down at the feet of their masters. So yes, I think many commentators have read way more into Naomi's plan 
than what is actually there. Scripture certainly never shies away from showing the frailty and failings of God's people. We just aren't seeing that here. There's no what happens at the threshing floor stays at the threshing floor moment. Naomi isn't urging Ruth to do anything inappropriate or sin sinful. So perhaps the lesson here for us is not to be so quick to judge and jump to conclusions when dealing with others, to make an effort to act more slowly and not open our mouths until we know the whole story, which is often made up of multiple levels. Well, I will say this about Ruth's plan, excuse me, about Naomi's plan. It isn't without risk. And while she appears to have absolute confidence in Boaz's honorable intentions, Ruth, as a woman, and more so as a foreigner, would have been easily taken advantage of. Naomi is banking on what she knows about Boaz, about his integrity. And what about Ruth? What's her response to this bold and daring mission? She puts her faith wholeheartedly in Naomi, trusting that she won't be led astray. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And spoiler alert, she does do everything her mother-in-law tells her to do. But one more thing as well. Continuing on. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So here we have Boaz worn out after a hard day of winnowing. You guys know what that's like. And this would also be a dangerous time when thieves and robbers might attempt to steal his harvest, so he's sleeping there to guard his property. Now, much has been made of this uncovering of Boaz's feet by Ruth, but this may be one of the times where the simplest explanation is the right one. So, for all you married couples, try this experiment with your spouse. Just don't tell them I'm the one that suggested it. On a cold night, after they've gone to sleep, take the covers off their feet. My guess is nine times out of 10, they'll either wake up or not sleep very well. You can try this uh, with your dog as well. <laughs> Uncovering Boaz's feet may simply have been a way to wake him up slowly without giving him a heart attack. Remember, he's an old guy. So in the middle of the night, something startled the man. And this word something is sometimes translated as cold feet. Just joking. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. So here we have an artist's rendition of what this may have looked like. Notice Ruth is lying perpendicular to Boaz, not next to him in any kind of compromising way. Who are you, he asked. And it's here where Ruth appears to go off script from the instructions Naomi gave. Instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, she makes what would be an incredibly forward and direct request, especially for a Moabite woman living in this culture. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The wording here sounds strange to us, but Boaz certainly would have understood exactly what Ruth, pardon the pun, was proposing. The request that Boaz would spread the corner of his garment over her was a symbolic pledge of marriage. In effect, she's saying, I want to be the one to whom you pledge your faithfulness the one with whom you make a marriage covenant. Even in our culture, this doesn't happen very much. Any ladies here propose to their husband? No one? Same thing in first service. Case closed. <laughs> 
It's also interesting that the word here translated as garment is the same Hebrew word for wing. Boaz used that same metaphor back in chapter 2 when he offered Ruth this blessing. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's as if Ruth is, Ruth is saying to him, remember what you told me a couple months back? Well, I want you to be that refuge. And this idea of Boaz being a type of Christ or a picture of Christ is clearly apparent here, as Ruth looks to him to redeem her, to provide for her, to give her security, to be her refuge and hope, to cover her with his love and grant her salvation. All of the things Jesus does for us. So now we're at an edge of our seat moments. How will Boaz respond to Ruth's bold proposal? Well, everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. Boaz is thrilled with the request. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And here in verse 10, we get a little bit of insight as to why Boaz may have been slow to pursue Ruth. It's quite possible he felt like he was too old for her, that she deserved a younger man. Now, it's not clear what the age difference is, but a lot of commentators would say it was considerable, maybe 20 or 25 years. Well, one thing before we move on. I want to take a moment to talk about the word that's translated here as kindness. It's the Hebrew word hesed, and I'm pronouncing that like a Gentile. Um, it's a key concept in the book of Ruth. It's used here three times, here in chapter three and also in chapter one, where it refers to Ruth and her kindness, and then again in chapter two, referring to the kindness of Boaz. It's one of those Hebrew words that's very difficult to translate into English with its full meaning intact. It occurs nearly 250 times in the Old Testament, typically used in reference to God. Often it gets translated loving kindness or steadfast love, but it's much more than that. It would be like taking the words kindness, love, loyalty, faithfulness, mercy, grace, compassion, and rolling them all up into one. Rob Bell describes it as a love as wide as the universe. As Christians, it should be our goal to mirror this type of loving kindness to others. I don't know about you, but it's something I often fail at. The other week I was driving and a, a car cut me off, and before I could raise my fist or shout out an unkind word, I saw this bumper sticker. Talk about a quick attitude changer. God is constantly showing us his said, caring for us, loving us, redeeming our lives, even when we're not faithful. And of course, his greatest act of said was sending his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Hesed is the very center of God's heart. It's the kindness he wants us to show others. Well, sometimes it doesn't take much. Simply a kind word. At the beginning of the week when I was knee-deep in preparing for this sermon, I felt like I'd hit a brick wall. I was downhearted and frustrated. And within just a few moments of feeling this, I received a text from one of my brothers at Celebrate Recovery. This is what it said. I took a vacation day this upcoming Sunday so I can be there to watch you preach. 
Good luck with your final preparations this week. I'll be praying for you. It might not seem like much, but I can't tell you how much that meant to me, how it totally turned around all the frustration I was feeling. Sometimes it's the little things, right? Well, sometimes his said comes from unlikely places. When you hear the words loving kindness, this may not be the first face that comes to mind. Some of you may recognize this actor, Danny Trejo, and you can probably tell he often plays gang members, inmates, or drug lords, but also the kindly uncle from the Spy Kids movies. He's the son of Mexican immigrants and grew up in the tough streets of East LA. By, age of four, by the age of 14, he was using and selling heroin. And for the next 10 years, he was in and out of prison, eventually getting clean and sober through a 12-step program at the age of 25. He hasn't taken a drug or taken a drink in over 50 years. At his lowest point, he said this prayer to God, get me out of this and I'll say your name every day. I'll do whatever I can to help my fellow man. He worked for a time as a drug counselor and then at the age of 40, quite by accident, he got involved in acting. It was one of those, it just so happens moments like from the book of Ruth. He's been over, in over 300 films and has used his celebrity to speak to groups of young people all over the country, warning them about the dangers of substance abuse. Last year, he was driving in LA when he came upon the scene of a car accident. Treo and a fellow bystander jumped into action, rescuing a child trapped inside the vehicle. When asked by reporters at the scene why he'd got involved, Treo shared this touching statement. Everything good that has ever happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. Everything. You see the change in his face. Will you make it your goal this week to find ways to show a said to the people in your life? Well, back to our story. Things are looking pretty good. Boaz has agreed to marry Ruth. Everyone's happy. Naomi's plan has gone off without a hitch. What could possibly go wrong? Well, Boaz continues. Although it is true I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Seriously, there's some other guy who's first in line? Ruth's hopes must have been crushed. But this statement shows us two things about Boaz's character. First, He's upright and honest. He's going to make sure things are done the right way. But second, apparently he's been doing his homework about what it will take to make Ruth his bride. He already knows all about this other guy. Boaz, you sly fox. But he also reassures Ruth, basically swearing an oath, that if this man refuses to marry you, I will be the one to redeem you. And then in one final act of said, Boaz says, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Boaz blesses her above and beyond what is required. I hope you see a picture of Christ in that statement as well. So Ruth comes home to Naomi, who's certainly been up all night, sitting on pins and needles, and by the way, Naomi, nothing bad happened. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, um, she asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she, Ruth, told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, 
He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. In these words, empty-handed, here at the end of chapter 3, are in stark contrast to what a bitter Naomi said at the end of chapter 1. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi had lost everything of value in her life, but Ruth comes home not just with an abundance of grain, but also a promise to redeem. How often has God taken our brokenness and heartache and redeemed it for something good? Too many times to count. Well, we can't very well end this chapter without one final word of advice from Naomi. She's a good Jewish mother-in-law. Perhaps sensing Ruth's nervousness at this unresolved situation, she says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Well, this is great advice for us as well. Be patient. God has this. He's in control. It's what gives us the confidence to look at the hardest things life can throw at us and believe God is still up to something, that he has a plan for us, just like he did for Ruth and Naomi. Through famine and funeral, poverty and uncertain circumstances, childless, husbandless, hopeless, God was there for them. He's there for us. And in the middle of so much loss, tragedy, pain and heartache, who would have guessed that God was going to do something that seemed impossible? In his sovereignty, he takes these two unlikely people of different age, race, religious upbringing, and social status, Ruth and Boaz, and brings them together to create a legacy that points to a great redeemer. You see, the book of Ruth is not the last place we see her name. She's mentioned again in the New Testament, listed in the genealogy written by Matthew. Ruth and Boaz have a son, Obed, and Obed has a son, Jesse, and Jesse has a son, David. Yes, that David. And through King David's line comes Jesus, our Redeemer. The book of Ruth begins as a tale of broken hopes and dreams, but it ends as a journey to redemption. We began this morning with a question, so let's end with it as well. What is best in life? The love of our Redeemer. It means everything. So remember well who has truly loved you because to be loved is the best of all. Will you join me in a closing prayer? This prayer was adapted from a writing by author Tanya Marlowe. Lord, would you make us like Ruth, courageous, filled with love, clinging to you? Lord, would you make us like Boaz, people of integrity who obey your law, even in the secret places? Lord, would you make us like Naomi, loved in spite of our failings and hurts, overwhelmed by your unexpected blessings. You are a God who reverses all our expectations, who raises up the poor and vulnerable, whose ways are not our ways, but who gives us grace upon grace. It's under your wings that we take refuge. Amen. Thanks for letting me.